Well, this morning we're we're going to kind of transition. This morning we're starting a new series, um, and it's in the book of Nehemiah. And Nehemiah may be a book um, that you have never read. Um, it may be a book that you've probably maybe never heard preached through or taught through. And we're going to spend the next several weeks in it. And it's a book that I've been looking forward to preaching for some time now, and I've wrestled with when to do it. And uh, this is the time. And so we're going to be in Nehemiah. Let me ask you this morning: If I was to ask you the question, "What is the most important thing going on in the world today?" What would be your answer? The most important thing going on in the world today. Some would say it's the global conflicts that we see going on in the world. And the global threats that we maybe even face as a nation. Some would point to environmental concerns. Uh, Maybe you think it's something going on in in our particular country, culturally or politically. Some would look to the presidential election. uh, Where we're going to elect the leader of the most influential nation in the world. Um, Maybe that's the most important thing going on in the world today. Well, I I would contend with you that the most important thing going on in the world today is what God is doing in and through the local church. Um, that God's redemptive purpose is being carried out in and through the local church. That is where God is primarily, He's working in all sorts of things, and He works in and through governments. But God's vehicle for advancing His kingdom and advancing His agenda in the world is the local church. And so the most important work that's being done in the world today is in local churches, not just in Orlando, but all over the world as the gospel is preached and the gospel is advanced. That is the most important thing in the world today. God's kingdom advancing in and through the local church. And in this series that we're calling Rebuilt, we're going to be studying this book of Nehemiah. And it's my hope that you'll see how God worked in and through His people in the Old Testament to protect and to preserve, to revive, to renew His people, and ultimately prepare the world for the coming of the Messiah. Just as God was working to rebuild His people in the Old Testament, God is working in building and rebuilding His people today in the local church. And in Nehemiah's day, we're going to see they lived looking forward to the coming of Christ. They were looking to the Messiah. In fact, uh, you may not know it by its place, and it's right there after Ezra. And uh, so if you turn, you get to Ezra, you're one, one more book over. It is the last of what we call the historical books in the Old Testament. What that means is, is you're reading Israel's history, um, and you read Ezra and Nehemiah, which they kind of go to be- gather, together. Some believe at one time they were one book, uh, but they're like sequels, right? Nehemiah's like the sequel um, to Ezra. And when you're, when you're reading that, you're, you've kind of got the last piece of Scripture we have about is, that's dedicated to Israel's history, because the next thing is what? It's Jesus, Right? And it's the New Testament. Now, we've got prophets and things of that nature. But what we're understanding here is that, that this is what this is building towards. Is, is, is the coming of the return of Christ. Uh, excuse me, of the first coming of Christ. And today, we're in a position where we're kind of in the, the last mark. You know, we had the book of Acts. And now we're looking forward to the return of Christ. We're looking at the second coming. So we're in a similar position in some ways that Nehemiah found himself in. They were waiting. The next thing was Jesus to come. We're waiting. And the next thing is for Jesus to return. And until then, we kind of live in this in-between time where God's kingdom is advancing on earth. He's advancing through the church. People are being built up in Christ. People are coming to faith in Christ. And we're on the front lines of that as the people of God in the local church. And so if you're not a Christian today, and you're wondering, what's the most important thing going on in the world today? Well, in this series we're going to learn it's God's kingdom advancing in and through the gospel of Christ and how God's building people up and how in the church we are a community that's on the front lines of that. We are doing the most important work in all the world. Now, let me give you some context before we get to reading. We're going to be in chapter 1 of Nehemiah. We're going to go all the way through chapter 2, verse 8. We're going to be covering Nehemiah in big chunks. It's a narrative book in the Old Testament, and that tends to be how we cover those. And this morning, we're going to learn what it means to rebuild with God. 
to rebuild with God. And so I need to give you some context because Nehemiah, like I said, is one of those more obscure books to kind of set you up where we're at. We're going to start with Adam and Eve, all right? And so in, in Genesis, Adam and Eve, we have the fall. We have sin entering the world that we're all very familiar with. And, but when Adam and Eve sinned, God made a promise in Genesis 3.15 that he was going to send uh, one of her, a seed, an offspring of Eve was going to come and was going to basically destroy the work of the devil. We know that to be the very first prophecy of the Christ, the Messiah, all the way back in Genesis 3.15, this offspring that would come. Well, then in Genesis 12, we read that God chooses for himself a people, and he does it through this man, Abraham. He looks at Abraham, this pagan guy, and he says, you're going to be mine, and all that come from you are going to be mine. I'm going to establish a whole nation, a whole people through you, and through your offspring, that word happens again, the world's going to be blessed. In other words, so you have Eve, and he says, one of your offspring is going to come and undo the... The work of the serpent, the work of the devil, and, and reverse all this. And he chooses Abraham says, now you're going to build the nation through which this person, this offspring, this Messiah is going to come. And so that just, we just cover a big chunk of history right there in the Old Testament with those two things. Now, God told Abraham that there's going to come a time in your future of your people where they're going to be exiled and they're going to be slaves to another people. And it happened uh, through Israel's own doing, they become slaves in in Egypt through their own sin and through their own idolatries, and then ultimately they end up slaves in Egypt. Um, as they as they as they as they as they, as they, as they, um, they actually moved closer to Egypt because of one of Abraham's um, ancestors um, or offspring on down the line, Joseph, um, it becomes a ruler in Egypt, and to help save Israel, he brings them there, and they end up enslaved to um, to, to Egypt for four hundred years, and then God raises up Moses. Next big step in the Old Testament story to lead his people out of slavery into the promised land. Because with the promise of an offspring to Abraham was a promise of land, right? What we know as the promised land, the land flowing with milk and honey. And so God raises up Moses and he says, okay, you're going to lead my people out of Egypt and out of slavery. It's been 400 years now. They've been calling out to me. I've heard them. And it's time to take them to the promised land. And so the plagues happen and all that great rich history we have in Exodus. And God's people leave in a victorious manner. God shows his might and his power. And we have the Exodus and God delivers his people from slavery. And then God gives Moses what we call the law. Right, which is what we have in much of the Old Testament when we read books like Deuteronomy. And he tells them, he says, now this is the law. This is how I want you to live. This is what it means to look and live like I want you to look and live and to live a holy life. And so he gives Moses things like the Ten Commandments and the law we have. But he warns Moses in Deuteronomy 4 and he warns Israel. He says, now listen, if you go astray and you start worshiping other gods instead of me, I'm going to scatter you throughout the world. I'm going to scatter you throughout the nations. It's, I'm gonna, judgment's going to come. Well, sure enough, through a series of times, God, they begin to reap God's judgment as they begin to seek other gods. When you go through and you read books like First and Second Kings, you see king after king come along and kind of help lead Israel astray a little bit. And you see the kingdom divided. You end up with the northern and southern. You end up with Israel. You end up with Judah. And you end up with all this stuff happening. And then finally, at a moment in history, something happens called the Babylonian exile. After years of idolatry, a country named Babylon and a king named Nebuchadnezzar, where we get the stories of Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, in about 597 B.C., they begin to capture Jerusalem. And in 587 B.C., Jerusalem actually suffers destruction. And they take some of the very best of the people, um, some of the royal line, some of the cream of the crop, the best leaders, basically, and they exile them to Babylon to basically brainwash them and turn them into super servants of the king. 
And then the Persians come along and conquer Babylon. In 539 B.C., Cyrus, the, the Persian king, captures Babylon. And so in Nehemiah's day that we pick up in, the Persians are actually the ruling kingdom. And the, 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 um, the Israelites are still subject to them. But something has begun to happen. The Persians are allowing the Jews to begin to repopulate Jerusalem in small segments. Uh, first, a, a leader by the name of Zerubbabel leads about 40,000 or so back to begin to rebuild the temple. And then about 70 years later in, in 458 B.C., a leader, a priest by the name of Ezra goes back to reestablish the religion in that day. And so in Nehemiah, we're picking up 13 years after Ezra had returned to Jerusalem to reestablish all this. It's many years after Zerubbabel have returned. But it's been just over 100 years since the Babylonian captivity and the people were scattered. And when that happened... Jerusalem was just ransacked. The temple was destroyed. The walls came down, set things on fire. And so over time, things have been to be rebuilt, like, like the temple. It's beginning to be repopulated in small segments because the Persians are allowing this to happen. And so 13 years later, when we pick up in Nehemiah, this is where we're at. All right? It's, it's been 13 years since Ezra began to lead that second group back into Jerusalem. So look with me. We're going to kind of read this in chunks as we go through the message today instead of reading it all at once. So let's read the first three verses together to kind of figure out what's going on in Nehemiah's day. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now it happened in the month of Chislev in the 20th year as I was in Susa, the citadel, that Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah and I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped who had survived the exile and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who had survived uh, the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. Now, the month there, Kislev, excuse me, I pronounced it wrong there, Kislev is November and, and December in, 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 our, in, our, in our time. And by saying the 20th year, he means the 20th year of the present king, which was Artaxerxes. All right, and so that's the king of Persia at that time. We're going to see his name pop up again in chapter 2. So it's in the 20th year of the king's reign. It's about November, December of our time. And in the Old Testament, you've got to remember, <coughs> Jerusalem was at the very center of God's work. It was here where the temple was and was to be rebuilt. This is here where God's people went to worship. Um, to Nehemiah, this is the most important city in the world. And he gets bad news in verse 3. There's great trouble and shame. In other words, for some reason... The people are not safe and are not in an honorable position. They are, they are in shame. They are in trouble. Uh, this is not the good report he had hoped for. Remember, after 100 years since the exile, you start to see, see some things happen. And you start to see the temple rebuilt. And then you see Ezra. You hear he goes back to begin to reestablish things. And so you got to hope for a better report, right? 13 years later, you're, you're hoping things are pretty good in Jerusalem and things are doing well. But that's not what he had hoped for. He had not hoped that the walls would be broken down and the gates destroyed. It seems what, ha what this is probably referring to is what we read in Ezra 4.12. That the wall was rebuilt or beginning to be rebuilt. And the enemies of Israel complained to the king, Artaxerxes, uh, to make, and he made it stop. They didn't like seeing this happen. And he ceased all the work. And it says they actually went in, in, in Ezra 4, and by force, they forced the people to stop the rebuilding. So it could be whatever they had rebuilt of the walls, they trampled and they burned down at that time. Really can't say for sure. But here we are, over 100 years later, and Jerusalem is still in a very vulnerable position, in a very weak position, other than what they were before the Babylonian exile. So the problem that Nehemiah faces as a, as a, as a loyal, Jewish, faithful man of the law 
is that things are not as they should be with God's people. They are in trouble. They are in shame. God's people are to the point, or, or, or God's people have the role of pointing people to God. Israel was to be the light to the nations. And Nehemiah's problem points today to our own issues that we have in our own culture in advancing the kingdom of God. It's a reminder for us that while God is at work in the world building His kingdom, just as He was then, many times His churches and His people are not in the condition they should be. Just as in His days the walls needed to be rebuilt for the glory of God and for the good of the people of God, so in our day churches and Christians need to be continually built up, rebuilt for the glory of God and for the good of His people because God... Is not dwelling in a temple. God is dwelling in the temples of the Holy Spirit. That's you and me, believers in Christ. God dwells in us. And we don't simply go to church this morning. We are the church this morning. And it is us who point people to God and to His glory. However, in our churches, there are broken marriages. There are struggling believers. There are churches that are off mission. There, we're, there are people that are struggling and failing to live out their God-centered purpose. We have our own broken walls and burned down gates. So, as North Park, we're not, we have to understand as a church that we haven't arrived. If I was to speak to our North Park family today, we, we're not all God wants us to be. And I don't believe for a second uh, that we're all God wants us to be. We have yet to reach our full potential in the kingdom of God and the, the kingdom work that God's called us to. And in our day of darkness, as many churches are struggling in our own culture to find their way, we're called to rise up and to build and to advance God's kingdom. God's kingdom and His church are going to be just fine. The question is whether North Park will continue in to join God in His work. And as a believer today, if you're a Christian, are you all God desires you to be? Are you maximizing your full potential in the kingdom of Christ? Is there broken walls in your own life? Are there areas of trouble and areas of shame? See, broken walls are easy to spot. But what do we do when we spot them? Trouble's easy to spot as we go to about advancing the kingdom. How do you and how does North Park move from simply recognizing the need to acting in the need? How do we begin to rebuild with God? And with Nehemiah, I think we see something of a process, a four-step process for us to rebuild with God in our culture and advance the church and advance God's kingdom. Number one, there's a need for burden. Look at verse 4, and we're going to just continue to read the passage. Verse 4, after he gets the news... It says in Nehemiah 1.4, As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days and I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. As commentator Charles Fincham points out in his great commentary on this book, he says, The ideal circumstances in which he had pictured the Jews in Judah were unrealistic. The citizens were in danger and so was their religion. See, it's one thing to know what's wrong. It's another thing to care about what's wrong. Nehemiah is not living in Jerusalem. He's far from there, many miles away, and yet he cares immensely about the situation there. He's broken over the brokenness of the city. Nehemiah has an awakening of sorts in verse 4. The burden begins to hit him. He, he's broken. His life is never going to be the same after verse 4. Forever, he has changed. He has had an aha moment when it comes to the kingdom of God and what he's supposed to do for his life to count in advancing God's kingdom. He said, what's the big deal? Did he just love architecture? Uh, was there just something about Nehemiah that he just really couldn't stand to see uh, a city without pretty walls, you know? Uh, well, it's actually what the walls symbolized. It's not a love for architecture, but a love for God and a love for God's people. He said, what's the big deal? Well, the wall was for protection from invaders. 
It also showed that this is a defined city and a place of government and a place of defense. This is where the people of God dwell. And remember, this is God's people. And the wall showed this is the capital place where Yahweh's people come and worship. The, the one true God. And here it is, kind of in ruins. Uh, the walls are broken down and it's kind of an embarrassment. And this is a reflection on God's people. And in Nehemiah's mind, I believe it's a reflection on God and His glory. He, he had what one pastor called his Papa moment. Remember the cartoon Papa? You know, he gets, he gets fed up and he gets fed up and then he goes and he gets a can of spinach, right? And he squeezes it and it shoots up in there and it shoots it into his mouth. Never been able to get a can of spinach to do that. I remember when I was a kid, I loved Papa and I always wanted to eat spinach because of that. So then they let me try some and, and I learned a lesson. You know, that, uh, that there may, maybe there was a... Re- I, being strong wasn't worth it. But right, he had all he could stands until he couldn't stands it no more. That's why Papa had, right? And that's Nehemiah here. It's his aha moment. It's the, okay, I'm done with this. See, Nehemiah had his own life and he had his own hopes and he had his own dreams. And he was more concerned about God's dream than his dreams. More concerned about God's kingdom than his kingdom and his life. See, apathy towards Christ and apathy towards God's kingdom is is rooted in self-absorption. Nehemiah could have been self, very self-absorbed. He's living in Susie's leaves. We're going to find out he's working for the king. He's got a good job. He's living the high life. But he's very burdened for what's going on with God's people in his particular role, in his particular time with the kingdom of God. And we need to understand this morning that joining God's kingdom work will include the death of apathy in our lives. You, you can't be apathetic towards the things of God and maximize your potential in the kingdom of God. You know, I think about apathy, I think about, you know, just not caring. And probably uh, some of the most frustration that happens in, in Christianized marriage, just to give you a little peek behind, is when we're trying to decide where to go for dinner if we're eating out somewhere. What do you want? Well, I don't care. What do you want? Well, I don't care. Well, I don't care. You pick. Well, I don't care. You pick. And then four hours later, right? Um, it, it's like, it's nine o'clock and we need to eat. And, you know, and because, because everybody, we're both trying to defer to the other person. I don't want to pick something that you don't really want. You don't want to pick something that I don't, so, so nobody cares, right? And that's really what apathy does. When you're in that position where I really don't care, it, it really just paralyzes you. Decisions don't get made. Things don't get done. And it is a killer when it comes to your role in advancing the kingdom of God. There was a guy by the name of Hezekiah in the Old Testament, one of the great kings of Old Testament history. But Hezekiah didn't finish well. A lot of times we don't think about that. But he didn't finish very well. And in his day, God came and he, and he sent a prophet to tell Hezekiah that, listen, because of some action on Hezekiah's part, that there was going to come a day that Babylon was going to come and they were going to capture and take away many of the people and some of his own line. But that it would be after he was dead, long time later, that this would happen. And, and it says when Hezekiah heard this, you would think he would... Man, this is my people. This is going to happen to the people I love. And my aunt, my grandkids. And my great-grandkids. This is what's going to happen to them. You'd think he would hit his knees. And he would weep and he would pray. But this is what the Bible says Hezekiah did. Let me read the verse to you from 2 Kings twenty nineteen. It says, The word of the Lord that you have spoken is good, Hezekiah said to the prophet. For he thought, Why not if there will be peace and security in my days? Self-absorption. And see, we can, we will either look at the broken walls and the broken lives and the brokenness in our churches and, and in our communities and be like Hezekiah and think, well, at least it's not me. At least my life is good and things are going well for me. Or we'll be like Nehemiah and we'll have empathy and we'll have brokenness and we'll have a burden to be in part of what God wants to do in the lives of people and the life of His church. So the first question for us this morning is, do we care? 
Do we want to be a part of what God's doing in the world and in Baldwin Park and in Orlando and in your neighborhood? Or do you need to wake up today? Do you need to have the aha moment? What's going to move you to service, to see God's kingdom and His gospel advanced in your life and in your sphere? That's step one, burden, desire, awakening. Step two is prayer. Look at starting in verse 5. Let's read down through verse 11. And I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love Him and keep His commandments. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though, you're outcast, though you are outcast, though you're outcast in the uttermost parts of heavens, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. They are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. Let's stop there. We see Nehemiah's brokenness. We see his burden. We see he's, he's weeping. He's fasting. He's, he's just, he's, he's, his life is never going to be the same. And now we see he goes to God in prayer. And we notice some things about his prayer. First, we notice that he recognized the greatness and goodness of God. He begins to, with the great and awesome God, the Lord God of heaven. Nehemiah knows Israel has a big problem, but he also knows Israel serves a big God. He is saying, God, you are the God who inspires all, is what he means when he says the, the awesome God. You, you are the God that inspires people to worship and to awe and to reverence. What we understand here is Nehemiah is very clear about who God is. He has an understanding. And we're going to talk about that in just a minute, of who exactly God is. And then he says, you're the God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him. He didn't necessarily recognize the greatness of God. He recognized the goodness of God. He knew God was a loving God. He was a God of hesed, a God of faithfulness, a God of steadfast love. This was the God who makes and keeps his promises. This was the God who had a special relationship with his people. This is a God who had been pursuing Israel for centuries. But he also recognized the sin problem in verses 6 and 7. Israel had sinned. He says, I'm confessing the sins of the people of Israel. Nehemiah knew and understood that Israel was in the shape it was in because of Israel, not because of God. Nehemiah had sinned too, though, he understood. He, he took ownership. He said, even I and my father's house have sinned. See, Nehemiah understood something. Before he could be a part of the solution, he had to admit he was part of the problem. We don't like that in our culture. We don't want to be a part of the problem. We want to be a part of the solution. But when it comes to kingdom work, when it comes to advancing God's agenda in the local church, we have to admit we're sometimes a part of the problem before we can be a part of the solution. Nehemiah understood that. He didn't just confess the sins of the corporate people. He did. He confessed his own sin. He knew he had his own issues and that he wasn't above it all. He was actually in the middle of it, even though he was far away in another land. And who was his sin against? God. He said, we've acted corruptly against you, God. The awesome God, the God of steadfast love, the God of covenant, the God, the God who loves us, that's the God that we've rebelled against. That's a powerful statement in his prayer. Nehemiah's prayer reflected the darkness of the situation. Because he understood that you can't pray with integrity if you don't pray with confession. Do you understand that? 
That when we go to the Lord with, with prayer, if there's no confession in our prayer, if there's no coming to God and confessing and dealing with our sin and repenting of our sin, that our prayer is hollow. That when we pray, when there's no dealing with our sin, then we're not really doing business with God in our prayer. We have to deal with our sin and get honest with God about our sin if we're going to really do business with God and really be people of prayer. But he didn't stop there. He reminded God of his promises. Look at verses 8 and 9. Remember the word that you commanded. See, he reminded God, you said, he knew, well, if we went off into idolatry, we would be scattered. But then he says, but... Let me remind you something, Lord. You said if we return to you and start keeping your commandments, you would gather us back. That's Deuteronomy 4. That's what, it's kind of the whole, you know, blessing of life and curse that comes with the law. Nehemiah was in his prayer reminding God of something God had already promised. And then in verse 10, he reminds God of his redemptive purpose in Israel. He says, we are your servants, they are your servants and your people. This is your people. It's not just anybody's people. We're not just some people. We, you own us. We are yours whom you have redeemed by your great power. And that word, in your, your mighty hand. God had redeemed Israel. And that word was used at times to talk about buying someone out of slavery. And God had certainly brought them out. It reminds us of the Exodus when he brought them out of Egypt. But in connection with God many times, commentators point out that the, the big idea that it was usually driving was the saving power of God. That God was the one who saves He had the one who had saved Israel time and time again. And the point is, God had a plan for Israel. Nehemiah knew it, and God knew it. God had a destiny, and God had a plan that He was committed to for Israel that He had promised all the way back to Abraham. And in Nehemiah's prayer, he's simply reminding God that these are your people, that you've redeemed by your great power. You're personally invested, and you have a redemptive purpose here. And this is kind of the good news. He's reminding God of the gospel and of the good news of the Bible. That God is a God who saves. That God is a God who redeems. And in our praying and in our burning, as we look around and we see the trouble around us, we have to be reminded that thankfully that we pray to a God that's not only holy, that's not only awesome, that's not, not only all those things, and not only are we a sinful people, but we serve a God who redeems. We serve a God who saves. We serve a God who rescues. And when we see the word redeem, we don't just think about the exodus. We think about the cross. Because we live on the other side. Nehemiah is looking to the first coming. We're looking for the second coming. We know even more about what God's done in sending his son to die for sinners and to be raised from the dead. Well, here's the thing. How did Nehemiah pray such a rich prayer? Do you think about, when you read this prayer, we, we kind of take it for granted because it's in Scripture. But this prayer is just rich with the word of God and the promises of God. This was a man who knew God. This was a man who knew God's heart. This was a man who knew God's plan because this was a man who knew God's word. Nehemiah wasn't a preacher. He wasn't clergy. He wasn't a minister. He worked for the government. He had a handle, though, on the word of God. And the word of God filled and shaped his life. He's a lay person. Understand that. He's going to be one of the primary people that God uses in advancing his kingdom in his day. And he is a lay person. Ezra is the clergy person. All right. And God's going to use both. But here, this is the layman. And God's going to use him in what he does for a living to advance his kingdom. And so when you ask questions like this, how do I get a heart to be cap- my heart to be captivated by the greatness and goodness of God like Nehemiah? The word of God. How, how does sin get revealed to me so that I can know and confess my sin? The Word of God. 
How do I become familiar with God's promises so I can fill my prayers with them and claim them for my own, the Word of God? How do I become familiar with God's love and purpose for my life? The Word of God, the Word of God, the Word of God. The reason Nehemiah's prayer was as rich and as shaped as it was was because it was rooted in the Word of God. You know the prayer God always says yes to? The one He's already said He would do. And that's what's happening here. We are never more in the center of God's will in our prayer lives than when we are simply praying according to God's Word. See, we, we have the wrestle with my will versus thy will. And Jesus taught us to pray, not my will, but your will, but thy will be done. And, it, and when you fill your prayer with the Word of God and the promises of God, and you get it a little bit off of the attention of just all these, not that we don't take our details and our things to God, we certainly should, but we begin with God's agenda and God's kingdom and God's purposes and God's mission in the world, and that begins to shape and form and fill everything else, and that is the prayer that we know God will answer. Imagine if Cannon came to me and said, Hey, Dad, can, can we go outside and play today? And I said, we can go outside and play today at 5 o'clock. I'm doing something, but at 5 o'clock, we can go outside and pray today. And it hits 5 o'clock. Now, he'd have to be a little older because he can't tell time yet. But at 5 o'clock, he comes running up to me and he goes, Hey, Dad, it's 5 o'clock. Can we go outside and pray? I mean, play? Pray. He used to remind it. Can we go outside and play? All right. He can be pretty confident that if I'm a person of my word and I'm a person of integrity... That I Now, I'm fallible, right? And things come up and things happen. But this is comparing to God. He can be pretty confident as his father that if I'm going to keep my word, that he's going to get an answer to his request. And it's because I've already said I'm going to do that. And he's not coming to me and setting the agenda. He's coming to me and saying, I know what your agenda is. I know what your purpose is. And I know what you've said is. Will you do it? Can I be involved in it? Can I be a part of it? You see, and when we go to our Heavenly Father and we are centered in His Word and we are praying His kingdom come and we are praying according to His will, according to His purposes, we are praying prayers that we can know that will be answered in the grand purposes of God because that is what God is committed to. You see, we want to root our prayers in understanding God's purposes in the world and try to get involved in what God's doing and not try to get Him to sync with what we want done. When's the last time you were moved to pray about God's work in your church, in your community, in your life, the advancement of God's kingdom in the world? Do you want to see God move in your life? Do you want to be used by God? Do you want, to, do you want your life to count for something more than maybe what you feel like it counts for at times? Do you, do you want God to use you in your workplace and in your neighborhood? And in your, if you do, it starts here. It's, it starts here. It starts humbly before God. As Nehemiah was praying. But notice verse 11. The third step here is surrender. The last part of his prayer here is, O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant, to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name, and give success to your servant today, and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. And then he says, Now I was cupbearer to the king. He waits to the end of chapter 1 before he tells us that he's got a, he wants to be involved. You see, Nehemiah's prayer revealed his surrender before God. The end of Nehemiah's prayer reveals that something about his heart, that he's not merely praying for God to fulfill his purposes for Israel, but he's surrendering to playing his role in whatever God's purpose is for Israel. Do you see that? He's not just praying, God, you said you would do this, now do it. It's God, you said you would do this, now use me. Give me success today. He's got a plan. And it, it begins to drive his prayer life. He's praying from a position of surrender. 
he actually prays, give me success today in the sight of this man. This man is going to be King Artaxerxes, the king of Persia. And you don't normally refer to a king in his day as this man. But when you're talking to God, all the king is, is man. When you're mano a mano with the king, he's a king, right? But when you're... When you're in the prayer closet and you're talking to God about the king, he's just merely a man. And the Bible says God actually holds the hand of the king or the governor or the president or the mayor or whoever it may be in leadership in his hand and he turns it wherever he wishes. And Nehemiah knew this. He says, yeah, I've got to go talk to the king. But before I do, I'm going to talk to the king. All caps. But he does something. He surrenders his position to the Lord. Give me success today. Give me success today. And then he says, now I was cupbearer to the king. He's about to leverage his job. He's about to leverage his career path. He's about to leverage his way of making a living for the sake of the kingdom of God. See, Nehemiah was in a unique position to help the people of Israel. And he's come to understand that, that as cupbearer to the king, that he actually has a role to play. And he's making himself available to God. You might have heard the old quote before, your greatest ability is your availability. And he's making himself available. And see, now the position of cupbearer, we like, what is that? We don't have cupbearers. He's basically like a professional wine taster, okay? He's kind of living the high life here. His jo- but on the negative side of that, his job was to taste the wine to make sure it wasn't poison. And so he brings the king his cup of wine. And before the king takes a sip, he would get a little, a little bit with his hand, throw it in his mouth just to make sure Nehemiah didn't kill over. So you know what that means? Nehemiah had to be trusted. He had to be trusted. The king had to trust him. And so a lot of times, in ancient times, there was a close relationship between the king and the cupbearer because he had to trust the cupbearer with his life that he wasn't scheming against him. Yeah, I tasted that. It's fine, king. Right? Um, Not only that, Nehemiah was the one person that was going to work really hard to make sure the king's court was filled with honest, loving, good people that loved the king because he didn't want the king to get poisoned because if the king got poisoned, Nehemiah got poisoned. <laughs> a lot of things that work there. But that's his, that's, his, that's his job. He's not a preacher. He's not on staff somewhere. He, 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 he works for the government in making sure the king don't die. That's his job. But it was actually, a pretty other than the risking your life, it was a pretty posh job living in the king's court. And because of this job, he has access to the king regularly. And the king, you have to understand, at one time had ordered... This particular king had ordered the building in Jerusalem that had started to stop. And Nehemiah, in asking for success, is revealing he's willing to go to the king and risk his job for the good of God's people and the glory of God. He's going to put it all on the line because he's going to not only go to God and say, God, or excuse me, the king. He's not only going to go to the king and say, King, not only do I want you to do something that you said stop, I actually want to go lead the effort. That's a pretty bold request that could cost him his job. Let me ask you, are you surrendered to being used by God in His kingdom work? Are, are you willing to allow God to use your, your job? Are you willing to allow God to use your gifts, your talents, your home? Everything for the sake of His kingdom work. God has a role for you at your office, in your field, at your place of employment. God has a role for you in your neighborhood. He has you in your neighborhood for a reason. Your neighbors aren't by chance. Your abilities and your spiritual gifts aren't by chance. They're by design. God has a unique role for you in His kingdom work if you're a believer in Christ today. And your church life and your work life and your home life are not meant to be three separate spheres like we like to keep them sometimes. We build these silos. And I go to church and I keep this nice and clean. 
and I go to home and I keep this nice and clean and I don't want anybody seeing in here because that will affect the way they view me over here. And then I go to work and I put up this nice big wall and I don't invite people to work to church because that ugh, that gets kind of weird. I don't have people in my home. That gets kind of weird. And I like to keep things nice and clean and neat and I don't like it to bleed over too much because that's just too much. Until you tear the silos down, until you say, God, I'm going to knock down all the walls and you can use my work life and my home life and my church life and it's just one life and I surrender it all to you, you will not be as greatly used by God in His kingdom as you could be. The people that are greatly used by God are used by God in all three areas, in all three veins. So you got to surrender. But number four, got to act. Action. That's the fourth step. It's one thing to be burdened. It's, it's, it's a one thing to, to pray. It's a one thing to say, God, use me. It's another thing to put feet to your prayers. It's another thing to do something. And that's what he does in chapter 2, verses 1 through 8. Let me read it for you. We'll be quick. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when the wine was before him, I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now, I had not been sad in his presence. And the king said to me, why is your face sad? Seeing you are not sick, this is nothing but sadness of heart. Then I was very much afraid. I said to the king, let the king live forever. Why should not my face be sad? When the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire. Then the king said to me, what are you requesting? So I prayed to the God of heaven. And I said to the king, if it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. And the king said to me, the queen sitting beside him, how long will you be gone? And when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me when I had given him a time. And I said to the king, if it pleases the king, by letters be given, letters be, if it pleases the king, let letters be given me to the governors of the province beyond the river. That's the land that around where Judah was. They may let me pass through until I come to Judah. And a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress of the temple and for the wall of the city and for the house that I shall occupy. And the king granted me what I asked for, for the good hand of my God was upon me. He was rebuilding with God. Chapter 2 is moving us ahead. Four months pass between the end of chapter 1 and the beginning of chapter 2. He fasted and prayed for four months, looking for the opportunity of when he would go. We don't know why, and this is when he moves forward. And what we learn is, see, he was surrendered. He was looking for an opportunity, but surrender without action is empty talk. Surrender gets your heart in the right place. Action gets your feet and hands in the right place. And it puts movement to what you're talking about here. You know, it's the difference in the guy. We, we look at the guy who dates the girl for like 15 years and never proposes, Right? And he's like, you say, well, why haven't you ever proposed? And he says, well, it's just never been the right time, right? You know, people like that. There's never a right time, right? A lot, with a lot of things. You talk to people, well, we don't know if we want, when we want to have kids. It didn't, the timing just never is right. The timing's never right for anything in life, it seems like, this big. There's always a reason. There's always an excuse. There's always something. And we have to understand when it comes to jumping all in and, 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 and living our lives and leveraging our lives for the advancement of the kingdom. There's never a good time. But here's what we understand something. For Nehemiah, it happened on a normal day. He was doing his job. Taking the wine to the king. For some reason, he knew today was the day. And that's the thing. It, it's, it happened in normalcy of life. 
He was just doing his job, going about his business. And you don't know what day is going to be the day that might make a huge difference in your life in the kingdom. So that's why you live surrendered and you bring it to the table every day. And that's what Nehemiah did. And for some reason, this was the day. He had never been sad in the king's presence. And the king notices his sadness. He notices his broken heart. He asks Nehemiah. Nehemiah tells him what's wrong. You notice he doesn't mention Jerusalem by name. The king probably knew where he was from. But no reason. This is the city that he had asked building to be stopped in. No, no reason to drop names here. <laughs> and the king had once ordered work to stop there. But Nehemiah is making a big, a big request. And notice his actions. First of all, he acted with prayer. It says, when the, when the king asks him, like, well, what, what, what are you asking? It says, Nehemiah immediately begins to pray. Right there in his spirit, in his heart. He, he doesn't run away and fast for four days. He just starts praying. Right there in his heart. Before he, and he says a little breath prayer, we call him. This is, the, I'm driving down the road and I'm praying on the way to the hospital. This is, this is I'm about to go talk to my friend and I'm saying that quick prayer before I do. And, and that prayer is answered, but you've got to understand, it was backed up with four months of praying and fasting. His prayer life wasn't just a series of breath prayers, in other words. But we need both. We need, we need to pull away with God, and we need to pray as we go. And Nehemiah is praying as he goes. And prayer was never meant to be a, intended as a replacement for action. Sometimes we can pray about things forever. Nehemiah had prayed, and now he's still praying, but he's going. And prayer is not a replacement for doing something. God calls us to pray as we go. But not only that, he didn't just act with prayer. In verses 2 and verse 5, we see he acted with boldness. He makes a bold request. Remember, he's, he's afraid, it shows us in verse 2. And the reason is the king, like I mentioned already, had already asked for the work to stop. He's risking his job here. He's, he's making a bold request. Listen, serving God is not always easy. And it requires boldness. When you look at Acts chapter 4, when the kingdom's beginning to advance after Jesus has ascended into heaven, and they're being persecuted, and they're being arrested, and they're being told to shut their mouths for preaching the gospel, they get together, and they don't pray for it to get easier. They don't pray for the persecution to stop. You know what they get together and they pray for? Boldness. They pray for boldness for the gospel to go forth. And the Bible says God shook the place. And God answered the prayer and they were filled with boldness. And they went out there and they advanced the gospel. If we're going to be people of action, we're going to have to be people of boldness. And that boldness comes from the Lord. Without boldness, we're paralyzed. I remember in high school, I, was, um, I played football one year. And I just didn't want to graduate high school without playing football. And I played football that one year. And I remember we were playing the most intimidating team on the schedule. You know, their, their, their roster had been littered with Alabama greats. Uh, and it was this, this, this small little school that was just known for producing football. So I was a little intimidated. I played wide receiver. I was a little intimidated. We were in the wing tee. I was a little intimidated getting in that game and going over the middle and getting my skull cracked. I was, get, I was a little intimidated to think about going and, and, and having to block that linebacker as he was going after that. I was a little intimidated about maybe running the slant route and having to catch that ball and, and having somebody that was going to play Division One football hit me in the back. I was a little intimidated. I was used to like baseball or something that hits you like this big. Not like six three two forty, right? And so I was a little intimidated. So I didn't really know. But I, I sat there on the sidelines. And, and in my position, you were to run up to the coach. And he gives you the play. And you go. And I remember that whole game. I never played. I played every game. I never played that game. I watched player after player running. And I never played. And, I, and after the game, I remember I, I, was, I was fussing about it. The coach overheard me. I was talking to another player. You know, he didn't even put me in the game. That's probably why we lost. He put me in the game. The coach calls me into his office. You know, Josh, uh, I would like for you to play in that game. But. You never, I was involved in the game. You, you've got to come to me and let me know that you haven't been in it. You, you've got to, you've, he was looking for a little boldness. 
out of me. And see, here's the thing. When, when you don't step forward, here's what I've learned just in life. In general, when you don't step forward, when you kind of let life happen to you, there are a lot of people that live life that way. Life happens to them. Oh, woe is me. This happened. No, nothing good happens to me. When you let life happen to you, you miss out on life. And it's the same way in kingdom work. There comes a time where we have to step up, we have to act, we have to be bold, and we have to kind of, we have to do something. And I'd rather fail trying and just not do anything to be on the bench. And Nehemiah got off the bench and he boldly went to the king. But he went wisely when you look at verses 7 and 8. He, he wants permission from the king. Look, he's got a plan. When the king says, how long is it going to take? He knows how long is it going to take. When the king says, anything else you need? He knows what else he needs. I need letters from you. They know that you've stopped this. There are these people, that are, these other governors, they're going to want to see proof that I have permission to do this. I'm going to need letters, and here's who I'm going to need them to. And I'm going to need wood to rebuild this stuff and to rebuild my home. And I'm going to need a letter. I'd like for it actually to come from your forest, king. And so I've got a plan. Give me a letter to the guy that manages your forest and let me get the timber from him. It was a, he had a plan. He was walking in wisdom. Churches and individuals need wisdom as we seek to serve in the kingdom. We don't just pray and plan, but we do so wisely. That doesn't necessarily mean slowly, but it means when you are living for, the, for Christ in your life, and you're serving Him, yeah, you need prayer, and yeah, you need boldness, but you need wisdom, and you need to pray for wisdom. I pray for wisdom every day. I hope you do. We need to pray for wisdom. The Bible says God gives wisdom. We need wisdom. But notice the last thing here. He acted with God. In verse 8, it says, And the good hand of God was upon me. You can read the book of Nehemiah and get a ton of leadership principles. They're there. They're not all great. I mean, in chapter 13, he's going to pull somebody out by the head of their hair and start yanking them around. Not a great way. You know, probably not the best method. Probably not, you know, much, you know the most servant-hearted thing to do. But he was, he was angry and for good reason, but not something we would condone. So you've got to be careful you don't just go to Nehemiah and just make it a list of leadership principles because, you know, how do you pick what to choose and what not to do? I would suggest not using that one. Uh, the star of Nehemiah is not Nehemiah, it is God. The good hand of the Lord was upon me is one of the key verses. And you need to understand the reason Nehemiah is successful is because God had engineered it. He, he was in concert with God. He found out what God wanted to do and what God was at work in, in the world and he jumped all in. And the good hand of the Lord was upon him. Nehemiah joined God in his work. Listen, don't make great and big plans and ask God to join you. How arrogant is that? God and His plans are bigger than us. and fi- So we need to find out where He's at work and what He wants to do and what His purpose is in the world and join Him in that. See, all this is just a nice idea that he, Nehemiah not stepped out and acted and went to the king. At some point, we have to do something. At some point, talk is cheap. God calls us to do more than have good intentions in our life. He calls us to pray. He calls us to more than prayer, though. He calls us to surrender. But He calls us more than to surrender. He calls us to act. God's at work. I believe that in, our, in, in the world today. Just like he was in Nehemiah's today, he's at work. And he is rebuilding lives. He's rebuilding people. He's rebuilding churches. And he's calling people to repentance and faith as he builds his people. And the question is always, will we continually join God in what God is doing? God has a plan for you. If you're a believer today, he's got a plan for your life in the kingdom. God has a plan for North Park. There's a role for us corporately and individually in the kingdom. And Nehemiah was serving in a time that they were waiting on the Messiah. And we're serving at a time we're waiting on his return. And the question is, in the meantime, will we build with God? Will we serve? Will we invest in the kingdom work? Will you as an individual do what you need to do so that your life can count on the grand landscape of eternity so that you can join God in his work? And the good news of this whole story, when you look at the book of Nehemiah, is like every book in the Old Testament, it points us ahead to Jesus. 
See, Nehemiah points us ahead to a, a better Nehemiah. A, a, a better builder who would come. Who would be passionate about God's glory and God's people. Way more passionate than Nehemiah was. And he would come and he would say, I will build my church. And see, it's no longer about a temple somewhere in Jerusalem anymore in the walls around it. It's about people. And God indwells people. God lives in people. And it's about the church. It's no longer about some country or some nation. It's about the church. God's people in the church. And Jesus has come. And He says, I'm going to build my church. And He comes and He lays down His life to to build His church. And He he dies for sinners. The steadfast love of God that Nehemiah says, God, you're a God of steadfast love who keeps His covenant. Man, that has been fulfilled in the person and work of Jesus Christ. The manifest presence of the steadfast love of God. You want to know God loves you? Look to the cross. You want to know God's at work in the world? That God's a God who redeems? Look at God. God's redemptive purpose, right, is being fulfilled in the person and the work of Jesus, right? This whole book points us ahead to that. He was preparing for His first coming. We're preparing for His return. Maybe today your life is a broken mess and filled with broken relationships and a painful past and maybe a daunting present. But there's one who can rebuild. Not only is Jesus building His church, the Bible tells us He's going to one day come and we're going to live with Him in a new heaven and a new earth. He is the better builder. He is the better leader. He is a better Nehemiah. And he is the one that rebuilds lives. He is the one that rebuilds people. He is the one that rebuilds churches. He is the one who can continually build and rebuild you and me. Maybe today you're a Christian and your life's off track. Maybe you would even describe it as broken. You're in trouble. Maybe you're in shame. And the good news of the Bible today is that God wants to and can rebuild your life. Will you join him in what he wants to do? And maybe today you look around and you see the brokenness in our churches and in the lives of people. And the question is, will you join God in His kingdom work in the local church? You want to know, man, how can I be involved in what God's doing in the world? It's it's in the local church. It's in the local church. It's the most important work in all the world. The question is always, will we join God in what God's doing?